This is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. Is Iraq about to fall to Islamist extremists? Is Afghanistan going the same way? So we ask, what were our two wars about? Why is the MOD in such a muddle over reserves? And the savagery of rape in war. One thing what a victim said to me to Bosnia, I told her, how do you feel? She said, they took my life away without killing me. ISIS is the extremist Islamist group in Iraq, a sort of al-Qaeda plus for the past six months. It's been conquering big chunks of that country during the past 10 days. It's taken control of major cities, including Mosul. It now threatens the oil-rich Kurdish region and significantly the capital of Iraq, Baghdad. I'm joined, as usual, by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. And on the line is Middle East analyst Hajir Tamourian. Hello to both of you. Uh, Christopher, first of all, uh, just tell us once and for all, what is ISIS and what do they want? ISIS is um, fundamentally Sunni extremist. And if you think Al-Qaeda and then double it, you've probably got an idea of what it is. It is. It emerged after not the collapse but the degradation of, uh, of really Al-Qaeda. You find that they're fighting in, in, in Syria. They are against the Iraqi government... Uh, but they're such extremists and they want a complete Islamist country and they want that country to be uh, uh, Iraq. From Western governments' point of views, and this is what they say in Washington, in London, in Paris, and to some extent in Germany, they could see this as the complete disruptive of the whole region of the Middle East. That is the size of them. They're very, very uh, uncompromising fighters. Hajit Tamourian, twice as powerful as al-Qaeda... Well, first of all, we must make sure everyone knows that Al-Qaeda has dis disowned them. Al-Qaeda central, in my opinion, has been virtually dismantled. Why have they disowned them? Um, uh, because they were so extreme. They were, in the, uh, in the view of Ayman al-Zawahiri, the leader of Al-Qaeda, they were giving Islam and his organization a bad name. So he disowned them in favor of another jihadist organization in Syria called Al-Nusra Front, the Victory Front. Uh, but, um, yes, they are powerful largely because the Iraqi government, unfortunately, has created a or have allowed to come into being a military vacuum in the Arab parts of northern Iraq, not in the Kurdish parts. If you look at the map, you, you realize that they are bypassing the Kurdish areas. And I was talking to two uh, generals last night in the Kurdish area, and I know why. So, Hajid, just tell me what you hear the latest is in the country. Well, first of all, the Kurds last night, you know, on Tuesday, managed to save half of uh, uh, the great big city of Mosul from the, this onslaught when they realized that all the Iraqi army personnel were, uh, were, were, had left. They sent 20,000 immediately uh, uh, reinforcements, Peshmerga, and they were able to save a lot of uh, th that city from destruction, the banks from being captured. More. And then later on, in some other places, I was told last night by this general, General Chaurash, uh, who has 80,000 Peshmerga under him, that they managed to kill a lot of ISIS members 
and uh, recapture some of the advanced American equipment that had fallen into their hands. So it's a very mixed situation in northern Iraq. Yeah, they are bypassing the Kurdish areas because they, didn't, they, didn't, they do not dare to even approach it. Christopher, um, you wonder where the Iraqi army is in all of this? The Iraqi army, supposedly trained by the United States army, um, they have been, they've proved to be corrupt, uh, badly organised, badly generaled, and they've run, very simply. Have they changed run. sides in some cases? Uh, that, that I don't know, but I don't think so much has changed sides uh, as this. What has happened during the past certainly 72 hours, uh, perhaps longer, is that you would get ISIS, would ring up the local dignitaries in a, in a town, and they say, we're coming in and we're willing to die to take that town, whatever. Why don't you tell your guys just to not to fight? And in some cases, we have apparently seen uh, the army running so fast, they've removed their uniforms, they've left their, their, their weapons behind. This poses a problem for um, Prime Minister uh, Maliki, is exactly what you do to take on ISIS. Now, Hajir mentioned Peshmerga. Now, Peshmerga are... Hajir, would you call them sort of uh, the, the Kurdish force, isn't it? They are, they are a Kurdish army. The Kurdish you. army, yeah. Now, they are the best organised, the best generaled, uh, the thinking, uh, thinking army. They are the sort of people that, by their very presence, the uh, ISIS say it's not worth going in there, not trying to get in there. And don't forget, this is not a huge army of ISIS. And the problem is you can take, you can take cities, you can take towns... Then you've got to hold them. And every time you take a town, you've got to leave guys behind to look after it, to put the logistics in. And so I don't think the ISIS advance is going to continue at the rate mm. that it has continued. What, what do you think, Hajir? Do, do you think it will continue at this rate? I don't think so. I think they are all already overstretched in Samarra. So, what, uh, so what, will, what, what, what will they do, Hajir? Do you think they'll try and consolidate where they are? Well, uh, first of all, I think they are, they are not really rational. Um, According to Western intelligence forces, their total number may be up to only 5,000 fighters, including Chechens, British Muslims, French Muslims, etc. And uh, they, uh, at the moment, one of their um, spokesmen is saying in Iraq, we are heading for um, not only Baghdad, but the holy city of Karbala. Well, if they approach Karbala, they will be met by fanatical Shia militias and they will be just massacred completely. So they are not, um, you don't, mustn't believe everything they say. Um, they are overstretched the Kurdish general who was talking to me directly because he was leading operations last night. He said, if we, our government, the Kurdish government, were to be given the concessions that the law acquires them to be given by the central government, we could move into the Arab parts of northern Iraq and wipe out ISIS inside one week. That's what... Yes. His opinion is of ISIS. And, Chris, this not not just about Iraq. This, this affects the whole region, including Syria. It affects the whole region. The first top part that affects the whole region is exactly exactly what uh, Hajir has just been talking about. If we get concessions, now part of those concessions is, is is being allowed to move oil because in that region is oil, and that's what they want, and that's the problem. But there are difficulties here. The Americans, for example, uh, are working overtime to try and identify. The motor car, for example, that the leader of ISIS is in, so they can send a drone in, but you can't send a drone operation in that region at the moment. And so it will, it's likely to spread, and that is the difficulty. By the way, watch what's happening in Syria, because to k maintain the forces that 
ISIS need. They're starting to have to pull out, perhaps, people, and people are moving away from parts of uh, the Syrian conflict. There isn't a place in the Middle East that is not going to be affected by what's happening at the moment. Uh, may, may I come in, Chris, Christopher? Because last night I was told that up to 2,500 uh, uh, prisoners have been released by ISIS in jails in northern Iraq, and local, some of the locals have uh, joined them. Again, I was told that up to 80% of the Iraqis among the people who've just come in from Syria are themselves former soldiers of the Saddam Hussein uh, Ba'athist uh, party. So they are a mixture at the moment. Uh, Christopher, uh, today uh, Russians wading into, the re into this saying that uh, the unrest shows a total failure of the US-led invasion. What are the Americans doing about any of this? Well, uh, I was saying earlier, they, the one thing they want to do is to try and identify targets which they may be to use drones on, and that's always a threat which they can carry out. But they can't go back in. Nobody's going to go back. British forces are not going to go back into, Bas in, into the Basra province. How do you know? Uh, because they haven't got the facility to do so, and you've got to be invited in, and you can't just, if you wanted to move in to do anything about this or to try and maintain some status quo for, for the Maliki government, you'd probably have to put in a divisional size. To put in a divisional size will probably take six or seven months just to organise. Can't be done. So the next thing, watch for drone attacks uh, especially and also watch for the moving of the K-11 satellite over there to get better intelligence on who's doing what and how fast they're moving. All right, Christmas, and, and, stay and with because, us. And because Maliki's problem, part of the problem, one of the conditions would be that he must... Uh, not pursue a third term as Prime Minister. All right. Hajje Tamorian, thank you for your time today. Um, Christopher, Iraq, clearly not a success story. What about Afghanistan? Deals already being done with the enemy there. Well, they're being done for another reason. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, in... in the, the key, one of the keys to, to what happens in Afghanistan later on is how much Taliban and the uh, Afghan government, the new Afghan government, can talk to each other. But the, uh, the Taliban took a prisoner and uh, he was a United States Marine. And they kept him in prison for some time. The Americans have negotiated, with the help of the Qataris and other people, uh, his release. Uh, in return, they had to release from Guantanamo five Taliban. Now, this gets to the guts, as, the, as people might say, of the problem. Just as we found in Northern Ireland, where we had to deal with the IRA and give concessions to prisoners... That's exactly what is going to be happening with Taliban. The difficulty now is that we will not be in charge of this. The Americans will not be in charge of it. It'll be a negotiation between Taliban and the new government. And that is the solution, the long-term solution to Afghanistan, all based on the first premise of a prisoner release. Well, earlier I spoke to Sir William Patey, a former British ambassador to Kabul, and I asked him what he made of this prisoner exchange. Well, I suppose it's a moot point whether uh, Bill Bergdahl was uh, was kidnapped or whether he walked out of... Uh, either way, he was a, he was a he prisoner. Would, he was a prisoner. Um, and you know, the Americans were regarded the, the Taliban as prisoners. They picked them up on the on the field of battle in, in Afghanistan. And I think that should be seen in the context of ongoing attempts going back many years to try and get a political process going, which in the end is what Afghanistan needs. I mean, I think the Afghan forces will be able to resist the Taliban. I don't think the Taliban can take over. But if Afghanistan is really to progress and to have a better future, then a political process which ends the insurgency is, is pr pretty important. So if this contributes to that, and remember the opening of the uh, Taliban office in Doha uh, were all part of that process and and there was talk of a prisoner exchange. That was all meant to be a precursor to 
uh, a political process. Now, if that's what it leads to, then it will be worth it. Do you think it will? Well, I think there are signs that the Taliban uh, are getting tired of fighting um, in the same way as the rest of the Afghans are tired of fighting. Um, there are splits within the Taliban. There are some Taliban who want to have a negotiation process. I can see why they haven't done it up to now. Uh, in the tail end, why make a deal with an outgoing president? Uh, better to wait for the incoming president. So um, there will be an incentive for them. Uh, they will be dealing with a president who's just been elected by a huge mandate um, uh, in a situation where foreign forces are withdrawing. Combat forces will be out by the end of this year and most foreign forces will be, uh, even residual foreign forces, will be out by the end of 2016. So the Taliban's narrative of their fighting a foreign invader uh, will look pretty thin. So I think the, the incentives for them to negotiate with a new ta Afghan government are high. What kind of fo foreign involvement do you think there should be in Afghanistan post-combat withdrawal? Well, I think it's very important that we continue to help the Afghans fund their security forces. I mean, we've helped them build up these security forces at the moment. Do you moment. think we will? Well, I think it's good that uh, I'm assuming that because President Obama has announced, uh, made announcements of troop, uh, uh, troop levels right up to 2016, that he's had a conversation with both uh, Abdullah Abdullah or Ashraf Ghani, the, the two candidates who will be in the runoff. I assume he's had insurances from them that they will sign the bilateral security agreement. That makes it much easier and more likely that the international community will maintain financial support had there not been a bilateral security agreement and had foreign forces uh, left completely at the end of 2014, it might have been more uh, difficult to sustain the international support. But uh, it's, I think it's looking better now as a result of that announcement. Sir William Patey, the former British ambassador to Afghanistan. Still to come, why British troops are back in Bosnia and we hear why it's time to act against sexual violence in conflict. The Ministry of Defence has announced another 1,000 redundancies from the armed forces. It's the fourth and final round of cuts as part of the government's strategic review. Major General Tim Radford is the General Officer Commanding Force Troops Command. He says the cuts were carefully planned. So today marks the fourth and final tranche of redundancy across defence. Um, it's regrettable that we've got to make, make the cuts, but it's necessary. Uh, and they've been carefully targeted to make sure that we can rebalance the armed forces to meet the, the requirements that were laid out in the Strategic Defence and Security Review back in 2010. Christopher, is it still necessary? Um, what is necessary is to rethink uh, how the recruiting of, um, of full-time soldiers especially uh, and to get away from this con concept of the, uh, for example, of, of, of the reserves. Also, there's been a major change in how people are thinking uh, about what the next sort of conflict, what the next sort of operations that British forces will be involved in. Interestingly, this week, the whole of the American Chiefs of Staff corridor at the Pentagon moved to London. It's the first time it's happened since World War II ended. And they're thinking, we have to understand what we're likely to be called upon to do mm. in future and how we do it together, what Obama started by saying was a coalition of, of, of the willing. So when you put the British uh, forces, the way the structure is going at the moment, it's got the wrong organisation, especially this nonsense about reserves, which was woolly thinking. Wrong organisation in, in what way? Um, because nobody's quite sure what they're expected to do. We're back to the fundamental policy problem that started in 2010. You've got to actually 
as, as government, you've got to tell your uh, Ministry of Defence, this is the sort of so, thing we want you to do in the so future. In that light, then, do you agree with what the National Audit Office report said yesterday, warning of significant risks to the army from cuts and restructuring or not? I think it was extraordinarily restrained in what it said. Really? Uh, what yeah. would you have said? Um, I would have said <laughs> that, I would have said you've got to stop here. Right. And you've got to say to yourself, we expected to get a lot of this stuff done by, say, 2016. The idea being that there's a new defence review, etc., and it's a new government by then. And I think you've, the army is aimed at 2020. At the moment, the army... You think it's too ambitious then? 2025. And there's right. no reason why you shouldn't do that rather than at the, and avoid the political pressure that, that was certainly on, on, on the tail of the new well, perhaps government. perhaps the next defence review will actually just change the goalposts and do that. Uh, you can't change the goalposts unless you know... I mean, it's a terrible sort of this metaphor. Uh, unless where you're playing. I mean, we're back to it. Foreign Office government is going to say, this is the level. We've just been talking about, for example, Afghanistan and Iraq, should we have been there in the first place. Somebody's got to say quite definitely, this is the sort of operation that we will be willing to do in the future mm -hmm. then you tell us what sort of forces you need this is the sort of operation that we won't be doing and therefore you can start making your, your savings there christopher stay with us soldiers from alpha company the royal scots borderers the first battalion the royal regiment of scotland are in bosnia training for a reserve peacekeeping role there our reporter ali gibson went to see what they're doing and why a polling station has been taken over by political extremists who have taken hostages Three platoon approach the building and creep inside, encountering gun battles and booby traps to rescue those captured. It's fast-paced and challenging training. Lance Corporal Andrew McCready. In the UK, it's more conventional. We're out here, you're actually training for something completely different, so you're learning a bit more. And for the younger jocks among us, they're getting a good experience from this. The European Union Force, or U4, mission here is known as Operation Althea, after the Greek word for healing. And this is still a country that needs to heal. Buildings across Bosnia-Herzegovina still bear bullet and shell marks, signs that peace between the Bosniak Muslims, Orthodox Serbs and Catholic Croats can't be taken for granted. British troops such as Sergeant Tom Megan were key in the UN's peacekeeping mission here and stayed until 2007. So I was here 2005 with our girls. Our main task was to come out and search houses, a thing called Op Parvis, where we'd look for uh, hidden weapons and weapons left over for the war and we would just uh, confiscate them off the, the individuals. Does it feel weird, like, full circle almost, coming back again, or...? Uh, well, when I was here last time, I was obviously a young private soldier. I'd been in the army six months. It was my first tour as such, and I'm now back as a platoon sergeant. So it is, it is quite weird, especially being in this camp nine years on. <laughs> In 2012, the British commitment to this Balkan country was revived as the army were tasked to hold one of U4's three immediate reserve companies. A Company 1 Scots are the second to do this, along with the Austrians and Slovenians, acting as an over-the-horizon force on five days' notice to move if trouble erupts. Add to that this week the government's announcement that 90 personnel from the Light Dragoons will also deploy to Bosnia in July for six months. And that's because in 2014 there are several events that could trigger violence. A company commander, Major Ali Hempenstall. They are facing an election in October, a presidential and parliamentary election, which clearly there'll be an electioneering campaign before that. We might see a rise in nationalist rhetoric. During the summer there's the Football World Cup 
that Bosnia have qualified for. There are anniversaries such as the Srebrenica massacre on the 11th of July and the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand on the 28th of June. So there's a number of potential flashpoints. And then just recently, as you'll be aware, that the flooding in this country has meant that there's a large amount of livestock that have been killed, homes have, have been destroyed and, and businesses have also have been ruined, which has further exacerbated the, the economic strife that many of these people are feeling. Hi, Hi David Eddington. Good to meet you. But why does it matter if there is instability here? And do we still need a British reserve force assisting the country? For David Liddington, the government's Minister for Europe, it's about doing what is right. It's still important today because Bosnia-Herzegovina is still a fragile country. There are still many tensions between the different communities and ethnicities and the role of U4, of Operation Althea, is to keep the peace it is a visible sign of the commitment by a European family of nations to peace and the rule of law for everyone in Bosnia and Herzegovina and a signal that we have the capacity to intervene to help keep that peace and preserve life if it really is needed. Whatever happens the next few months in Bosnia-Herzegovina, A Company 1 Scots are now part of that mission to help keep this country safe and secure. Ali Gibson for BFBS in Sarajevo. Christopher, it does seem, in terms of Bosnia, there is still unfinished business there. Yeah, and so the Bosnians think so as well. I mean, when you think of what happened in uh, 1991, uh, when the Bosnians threatened, say, Croatia and really started that whole conflict... Now we've got an obligation to try and hold everything together and to be part of the sort of forward operating thinking of NATO. If the whole uh, Ukrainian thing hadn't have come up, it wouldn't have been so urgent. But now NATO is thinking to itself, perhaps Croatia, I think Bosnia as well, will be a forward operating base for mm. NATO in the future. That's why um, it's important what um, one Scots are doing becomes extraordinarily important because people get used to the idea of working with each other. The command and control system works. And also people say, we've got a jumping off point if ever we should need it. Mm. Well, this week, the Foreign Secretary William Hague and the actress Angelina Jolie dedicated their global summit to end sexual violence in conflict to abandon victims of rape in Bosnia. Our reporter, Rosie Layden, was there and spoke to the UN Under Secretary General and Special Representative for Sexual Violence, Zainab Hawa Bangura. Here we are for the first time in the history of the world that we have a summit that brings together government, NGO, civil society, which will put the issue of sexual violence in conflict at the heart of our relationship and make sure we all agree how we work together to end it. And this is such an important issue. And, and at the UN, um, you really see the, the human fallout from um, this dreadful war crime. Can you give us a sense of, of why it is something that the world must tackle? Well, the first thing I have to say is that not only are women, men, boys actually sexually abused, but the, 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 the victims are becoming younger and younger. Save the Children wrote a report last year where 50% of the victims are below the age of 18. In Liberia, we did a study where in 70% of the victims are under the age of 18. I have seen three-month-old victims. I have seen six-month-old babies, 18 months, women 70 years old blind in a camp, in refugee camp, in ID camps, in homes all over the place. So, I mean, like my colleague from Zili said, it's an epidemic. 
And I think we have to find a way of correcting it because it means we're destroying a generation of children and also making sure that women who are supposed to participate in their country are not able to participate because of the stigma, the ostracization. So it is extremely important. It's an economic issue. It's a development issue. It's a health issue. It's a human rights issue. And you said earlier that um, it's great to have so many people here for the discussions, for the debate, but what we really need to see is action. Um, what would you like to see come out of this summit? I think the important issue is, first and foremost, to get firm commitment from everybody. There are people who have been working on the ground, but there has been a huge challenge because of the culture of denial and the culture of silence. They are not being given the space and acknowledgement by country. Women are not being allowed to seek justice. They don't have reparation. They don't have the services that are required. So this is, this is why it is extremely important that coming out of this country, we have practical, basic, practical, simple agreement things that we need to do. If a woman gets raped, she needs to have um, medical service within 72 hours. Within that period, you can collect the evidence that she can use and that evidence must be protected. This is the reason why we're happy that they are launching the, the, the protocol on investigation because it's simple, but I tell you, in most countries, women never have the access. And by the time, 50, 20 years later, they're accused of, say, of lying. And this is what we have in Bosnia. 20 years after the war in Bosnia, we have 40 to 50,000 women who were victim, victims of sexual violence in Bosnia. Nothing has been done for them. Why? Because they've not been able to have justice. And it was the Bosnian conflict which um, one of the chairs, Angelina Jolie, said inspired um, the idea behind this summit. She also stressed that um, sexual violence in conflict is not an inevitable product of war. Would you agree with that? Oh, definitely. I think it's calculated is premeditated and it is basically done to dehumanize, destroy and degrade the vulnerable society, victims in the society. And I think that's the reason. So I also went to Bosnia and I tell you one thing what a victim said to me to Bosnia. I told her, how do you feel? She said, they took my life away without killing me. That was Zainab Hawa-Bangura talking to our reporter, Rosie Layden. Christopher, of, of all the atrocities that are committed during times of war, why do you think that, that rape in particular has attracted such interest with this summit? It's not so much this summit. It's been building up, I think. It's been building up. But the point is, people who were violated, people who were killed as a result of this, their families, uh, and it, on such a mass scale, we now have a means of telling people and this is, we're back to the sort of social media thing, which is, 15 years ago, didn't exist. These stories wouldn't get out. And that's what's happening now. And so, and then you get the people like Angelique Jolie uh, latches onto this. Just the same way. Do you remember how uh, the late Princess Diana latched onto the landmines? Of course, yes. Story? Yes. And it, it produced, eventually, uh, an agreement quite a big international agreement about the banning of, of those sort of uh, I mean, systems. You'd, you'd assume that this is banned, it's illegal anyway. Do you think this kind of summit's actually going to achieve anything? Well, it won't achieve. You won't be able to stop uh, marauding, as I say, marauding as opposed to sort of organised soldiers, for example. Certainly in some of the African wars, you won't be able to stop the adrenaline the pure savagery. It's also used as a tool, isn't it, for ethnic cleansing and to, to a certain extent. And always has been. Eric Bloodex, the Saxon, the, the well, came, from, came from the Norsemen, uh, employed and said so the same 
properties in warfare as as rape, rape and pillage. And so you, 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 you say we're coming, the women say we're going to be raped, they grab the children, they start to run, you've caused panic. Right. And let, let's um, talk about other things around this week. And the US has resumed drone strikes in Pakistan, presumably this in the aftermath of the Pakistani Taliban carrying out some atrocities. Well, it is. But more than that, do you remember we were talking earlier about uh, the prisoner exchange? Indeed. When the five uh, uh, Taliban prisoners were, were released from Guantanamo, the American Secretary of State, Kerry, he said, will come looking for you. Mm. And I think that this is an operation. They've gone looking for them, exactly as the way they'll go looking for the, the extremists uh, in, in, in Iraq who are trying to bring down the, the Shia government of, mm. uh, of Prime Minister Maliki. Okay, and in terms of the Royal Navy, remember the Pacific, a naval exercise going on there. Tell us about the significance remember of that. Remember the Pacific, it's the biggest naval exercise ever. It's the, I mean, it's the biggest, biggest, biggest ever. But the interesting thing is that the, chi uh, the Chinese are involved. How big? Uh, it is... It, biggest, 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 biggest. It's the biggest, <laughs> biggest, biggest, and getting bigger every moment I think about it. But it, it involves hundreds of vessels. It invo involves tens of thousands of people. But the important thing is that the Chinese are involved with American ships alongside them and Royal Navy vessels. And finally, very briefly, MI5 in a recruitment drive. Yeah, they're looking for an intelligence officer. They pay about 25 grand, they'll mm, tell you. In not quite enough for it, me. Uh, <laughs> close um <laughs> but it it, it, it it's, it's training and mm. it's the guy that sits at the center and says uh, we need to do a surveillance on somebody we need to get uh, a team out there to look at this we need to get some information from mi6 etc that's what they're advertising about 25 go online you can get the job it can be yours in a fortnight <laughs> Well, with that kind of offer, we better end this program and get on my computer. Thank you, Christopher. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Sports, sports and music, music. for the British.